Our scripture text for today is Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say, she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I think it's probably a universal truth that uh, none of us really like tests, and yet we all take tests. Even from a young age, we're taking tests to discern math or science or tests of strength or endurance in athletic contests or in weightlifting or tests of intelligence regarding ACT or SAT before entering school. So we're taking tests all the time. And it, as I said, we don't like tests. They make us nervous. It's like going to the dentist. And yet I think most teachers would tell you that tests aren't meant to crush us They're meant to actually reveal what we understand about a subject. They're to be evaluative. They're evaluating so that we can make adjustments so that we can grow in those areas that we're being tested in. In a word, tests actually can be very good for us. Well, you know, we're back in Genesis and we'll be looking at the second part of Genesis. If you remember last year, Genesis, by the way, means beginnings. And so I thought we would just study Genesis at the beginning of each year. So last year we looked at 1 to 12. Uh, that is the kind of the, the beginning of everything, the beginning of the beginning. And then this year we'll be looking at the life of Abraham from chapter 12 all the way through 25. And Lord willing, in 2024, we'll look at the life of Isaac and Jacob. And then, yeah, 2025, we'd look at the life of Joseph. But what I want you to see is when we left off in those first 12 chapters, or particularly first 11 chapters of Genesis, the constant theme was God's relentless mercy to save a people who had fallen far from him. Think about the fall in chapter 3. Think about the destruction of the flood, chapter 6 and 7. Think about the arrogance of the Tower of Babel. And yet God continues to pursue a people. Now we pick up in Genesis 12, this man by the name of Abram. He will be later called Abraham. Right now he's called Abram. And Abram now is the one that has been given promises. So last time we looked at these chapters And the first nine verses, God gave to Abram promises. He said, listen, you're going to have a son, and the son's going to have sons, and you're going to have a people, a nation. You're going to have a land. Not just you're going to have a land, but you're going to be a blessing to the world. Uh, So God is continuing to save through the brokenness of men. Now, when I told you about those promises last time, 
you probably remember they sounded a lot like the promises given to Adam. Abram is like a second Adam. Remember to Adam, it was given the promise. He said, you have this land, a land that was quite fruitful. You're going to have a son. You're going to have a people, he said. He said, you're going to be a, a, he said, you're going to be a blessing to the world as, the, as Adam and Eve were going to be the vice regents of God's creation. And so you see the same thing given to Abram. So where Adam was told he had a land, so Abram is told you have a land flowing with milk and honey. As, as Adam was told that he would have a son and descendants, so Abram. His descendants would be like the stars of the sky. And as Adam was going to be kind of the vice regent over all the world, bringing flourishing to the nations, so Abram was said, you will be a blessing to the nations. So why the parallel? Well, the parallel is to remind us that God's plan of saving a people for himself hasn't stopped. The, the fall didn't stop it. The flood didn't stop it. Tower Babel didn't stop it. No, God is almost reckless in his mercy, relentlessly pursuing a people to save for himself. We are in the wilderness. That's chapters 3 to 11. And now upon Adam, or excuse me, upon Abram, the baton of redemption has passed. God's not finished. No, God's continuing. He's going to save a people for himself in spite of who we are. And so we saw Abram take up these promises. And what did he do? We saw him walk by faith, right? We, we saw him leave Ur of the Chaldees. Remember what it said? Not knowing where he was going. And yet he walks after God by faith. And he goes through and ends up at Canaan along the way, building altars along the way, calling out to God. And he comes to Canaan. And what's he find? Well, God appears to him in chapter 12, verse 7. Abraham has walked by faith. Abraham now is carrying the promises that God had given to Adam that a son will bring forth, destroy the enmity, and return us to God. So how well does Adam, how, how well does Abram do? Well, you see in our story, not super well right now. I mean, it's a major faltering in faith. But what do we find? God is faithful when we are faithless. God is faithful when we're faithless. So, so look with me at three things, because the story kind of moves in three movements. First, there's the test. Our faith is tested. It's, it's tested. We see that in verse 10. Secondly, our faith often falters. We're going to see that in 11 and 16. Our faith falters. And then in 17 to 20, we, we find that our faith is rescued. God has to rescue faith. And that's what he does in 17 to 20. So look with me at our faith being tested. In verse 10, let me read it again. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. So here we've seen the faithfulness of Abram. He's moving forward in faith, and then what happens? He comes to the land of promise. He comes to the land that God had promised him, and what happens? He's met with a famine of all things. And the famine was severe, right? Twice it's mentioned, it's severe, it's a severe famine. What's he do? His life is being threatened. Well, he goes to Egypt. Now, that makes total sense from a human perspective. Egypt had the Nile. The Nile, except for the severest of famines, would have water, and with water, you have life. And so he goes down to Egypt. This is a test. This is an opportunity. What, what is Abram going to do? He was promised this land of blessing. He meets a famine, and what does he do? 
Will he turn to Egypt? Now, Egypt isn't necessarily a bad thing at this point. It will be a metaphor later on. It's not necessarily a bad thing, but we don't see Abram seek God. We don't see him appeal to God, inquire of God. We don't see him move back to the promises that God had given to him. We see Abram what? He acts out of his own accord. He acts out of his own mind. He, he plans for himself what makes sense to me. This is really um, a death nail for us when we are encountering trials and tests of faith and we move right to our experience or right to our human wisdom. In Proverbs 14, 12, we're warned, there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And this is what we find here. So let's just stop for a minute in verse 10. All of us are going to face tests. The tests come to all of us. Now, I, I know that we know that cognitively, but we often are surprised when we face tests. We think, well, we have God now, so we shouldn't be tested. We shouldn't be tried like this. But I want you to also notice that this test came after a move of faith. Abram had walked by faith all the way from Ur all the way to Canaan, and then boom, that's when the test comes. This is what's, I think, shocking about the passage, is he had been walking by faith, and yet God brings him to a test. We think when we're walking by faith, and you know, we're honoring God, we're seeking his word, what do we think? Oh, the sky should be clear, the road's smooth, life easy. When we're walking with God, we don't expect any sort of test, any sort of trial, any sort of difficulty, particularly when you come to faith. You know, when you, when you come to faith, you're excited, you're praying, and you immediately believe your prayer should be answered. You're asking God for deliverance, and you immediately think God's going to deliver you. And often he does when our faith is young like that. But as we grow in the faith, God's tests are revealing to us. You see oftentimes in the life of the Christian who's older, you know, there may be feasting on the mountain one day, but there's famine in the valley the next. Don't you see this in the life of Moses? I mean, after the great miracles of Egypt, he's sent where? Into the desert. Elijah, after the victory over the prophets of Baal, where is he sent? Into the desert. Now you see it in David, after the victory over Goliath. He's now pursued and hunted like an animal by Saul. You see it in Jesus too. You know, see, the life of faith is one that's constantly facing tests. Uh, professor, I had Dr. Haifman in uh, seminary. He said that what life is, is it's a school of faith. That's what it is. It, it, it's, it's a series of tests where God is fashioning and forming us through the tests, revealing to us things. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says about this. Um, this is an extended quote, so hang with me. He says, God does not put heavy burdens on weak shoulders. God educates and tests our faith by trials that increase in proportion to our faith. God expects us to do adult work and to endure adult afflictions only after we have reached a mature status in Christ Jesus. Therefore, beloved, expect your trials to multiply as you proceed toward heaven. Don't think that as you grow in grace, your path will become smoother and the sky calmer and clearer. Quite the contrary. As God gives you greater skill as a soldier of the cross, he will send you on more difficult missions. As he more fully equips your ship to sail in storms, he will send you on longer voyages to more boisterous seas so that you may honor him 
an increase in holy confidence. Let us never plan on a rest from trials this side of the grave. The trumpet still plays the notes of war. You cannot sit down and put the victory wreath on your head. You do not have a crown. You still must wear the helmet and carry the sword. You must watch, pray, and fight. Expect your last battle to be the most difficult, for the enemy's fiercest charge is reserved for the end of the day. These are sobering words for us. They're encouraging in one way, and they're also sobering and difficult in another way. But I think what he's teaching us is that God has a pattern of growth sanctifying his people from glory to glory, and it involves these kind of tests and trials. They reveal where we are. We don't like them. None of us do. But they do reveal to us what we're trusting in, don't they? When you're encountering a very strong, maybe a physical issue that you're facing, maybe health crises, maybe financial insecurity with the way the market's gone, and the way you've invested, you've taken a more significant hit than perhaps others, or it may be relational conflict that you have. It's just squared up at odds with somebody. What do you turn to? What do you find your heart moving towards? Do you find it running to God? Do you find it pleading with God? Or do you find it moving to other human-engineered responses? See, the Christian will face tests. You will face these tests. What will be revealed in us? It's really important for evaluation purposes so that we can begin to, again, appeal to God. Perhaps we've forgotten. And even if you're here and you're not a Christian, these times of testings, don't let them pass without value. They can reveal to you what you're putting your hope in. That as you encounter various threats and trials, you're going to begin to see that the props of this world cannot support your weight. You know, C.S. Lewis used to call pain the megaphone of God. And the trials that we encounter often, are often trying to draw our eyes upward, not to other sources of rescue, but upward to God, to transcendent help. So that's what we see in verse 10. Abram had walked by faith, and immediately after this walk of faith, he encounters a test. Well, how does Abram do? Well, look with me back at 11 to 16, because we see how he does. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. But they'll let you live. Say you're my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, ox, and male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. This is an incredible story here. So he's, he's about to enter Egypt. And obviously he's a foreigner. Obviously he has no contacts. He has no connections there. He's beginning to fear for his wife. He sees his, for his life. He sees his wife who's beautiful and he begins to think they're gonna kill me and take her because of her beauty. And so he begins to scheme. He begins to make a plan. He begins to think, how can I save my skin? Now, Sarai, I want to remind you, was probably about 60-ish at this point. Now, remember, the patriarchal lifespan was twice ours. So I'm confident that the 60s are the new 30s 
And so if you know, they live twice our age, then maybe I'm like 30. Don't think that's gonna work. But remember now, the way we look at beauty as youthful is more Greek than it is Middle Eastern. She had a beauty to her, and he knew that, and he felt threatened with his life. And so he moved into scheming and planning, and he said, I'll call her my sister. Now, technically, he was half right. She was a half Sister, they shared the same father, had different mothers. But that's not the point. The point is that he was going to use her for his own good. He was going to leverage her beauty for his own salvation. I mean, it, it smells horribly at this point. Well, what happens? Well, it happens as he predicted it, that they entered the land, they saw her beauty, and then the princess of Pharaoh saw her beauty, promoted her to the Pharaoh, and he took her, and he was made quite wealthy. So it looks like his plan worked. Kind of. The problem was the Pharaoh took her. It could almost be, almost be translated kidnapped her, just took her. Uh, perhaps in this Bedouin way that he came from, he was thinking, well, I'll just call her my sister for a time to get ingratiated into the community and, and then reveal that she's really my wife. And it was a cultural confusion we had. Maybe he was planning on something like that, maybe in the best case scenario, but it didn't work out that way. Now, she wasn't taken for being domestic help in the house. She was taken to satisfy the sexual desires of the pharaoh. So we're left in this scene that she's now taken into his home. She's in another man's home. And what we're to see in terms of what's been revealed about his faith is it faltered. I mean, it fell flat. I mean, here is Abram with the promises of a land, a people, and a blessing to the nations. And he ends up with his wife in the home of another man. I mean, the vulnerability that he put her into for his own skin, his own self-interest, putting himself above her. But not just that. God made a promise that the plan for the nations was going was to move through he and Sarah in a union which would produce a child. And this child would have a seed that would be the Messiah that would save the world. That whole plan is jeopardized by his foolishness and faltering in faith. The whole plan that God had, now it was Adam, Adam failed. Noah, Noah failed. Abram, Abram, now look, she's in another, she's in the Pharaoh's house. It could have stayed that way. She died, she'd be buried with the Egyptian pharaohs, and what would be with God's plan? So he falters in faith. Now I want you to realize that faith doesn't just fall over, just on one fell swoop usually. It's usually a whittling away of faith, and that's what we kind of see in Abraham's life. You know, it's a, it's a whittling away. We rationalize here, we rationalize there, we move further and further and further away from the promises of God. We began creating our own schemes for how we're going to live this life, and, and 10 years passed down the road, and we're far, far, far from God. You know, when you encounter a threat, what do you do? When you, perhaps your name is being ruined, or your reputation, or perhaps you're facing some serious financial insecurity, what do you begin to do? 
you know, our tendency is to begin to rationalize. And we begin to justify certain behaviors. We can gossip, we can, we can complain, we can hold bitterness, we can act in unforgiveness, we can act with greed, we can hoard, all to protect whatever that threat is. We begin to, we begin to make these plans. We begin to rationalize all kinds of behaviors. Well, God put me in the situation. I gotta do something. I mean, don't expect me to sit here. Well, they did that to me. I'm going to have to return the favor. I mean, it's the way you live in this world, Tom. It's one thing you working on church on Sunday, but the rest of us work out in that world. And, and you've got to do things the way that they've got to be done. Folks, I, hear, I hope you hear the rationalizing in that. Here's the problem with rationalizing. It works just for a little bit, though. It, it works, but just for a little bit. How many of the schemes that you or I have embraced and we thought, we're just going to do a little white lie, a little half-truth. We're going to tell only 90% of the story. We're only going to, and we begin to plot and scheme so that we'll get over whatever jam we're in. Maybe, maybe we haven't prepared for a test. We're going to just look at the neighbor's paper. Perhaps we're kind of caught in a conflict, but we're not going to share the whole story. These are all ways that we rationalize our faith, which moves us further and further away from trusting in the promises of God. You know, Hebrews tells us that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That's what faith is. Faith is trusting in God even when your house is on fire. We're not going to rationalize. We're not going to take shortcuts that are morally dubious. We want to live by faith. And that's where he faltered. He forgot the Lord his God. Now, I know some of you, too, may be struggling with Abram. You may be thinking, he's kind of a hero, isn't he? He's the father of the faith. And Man, this guy's got dinks and dents all over his armor, doesn't he? Doesn't it encourage you to know that the Bible doesn't kind of whitewash the saints? Doesn't it encourage you to, that you get to see them in all of their glory i mean it, it, how, wouldn't it be terrible if they never faltered or, or they never fell or, or if they always were victorious over struggles or if they never sinned they always rose to the challenge and, and yet he shows us this do you know why there's no heroes in the bible but god they're all sinners they're all broken Abram, Moses, David, Peter, Paul, God's the hero. God's the one who's doing the work. We're, we're just thankful that God uses flawed saints like us to bring forth his work. Can we remember that with each other? That we are broken people who sin against each other in word and thought and deed? God doesn't, he's not finished with us when we do that. He's not done, he doesn't kick us to the pile. He uses flawed and broken people. And that's what we see here, because what happens is, what's revealed about Abraham is he was faithless. And so God rescues him. God rescues his faith is what he does. Look with me at 17 to 20. He says, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, well, what is this you've done to me? 
Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is the point of tension in the story, right? So, So think about the story. We're reading it. And his plan worked initially, failed. His own wife is in a harem with other women in another man's home. He has no idea what's happening to her. His plan has gone absolutely sideways. Uh, God didn't speak when he was going down to Egypt. God didn't speak when he was making a plan and scheming. God didn't speak when he was getting the wealth. But now God moves. He relieves the tension in these words, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his household. But the Lord. Isn't it good that God rescues us? But the Lord afflicted. It's incredible. God afflicted Pharaoh. We don't know what these plagues were. Could have been the word itself is used for skin diseases. So, so diseases are on the skin of Pharaoh. What do we make of this? Some people want to think that God afflicted, um, God afflicted Pharaoh because he had committed adultery with her. It, it might be implied in the text because he took her into his house, which had sexual connotations. That I took her as my wife, he said to Abram, which would have implications of adultery. I follow Calvin on this. John Calvin spoke to that the plagues were preventing that. The plagues were protecting her. That he wouldn't have committed adultery. And the reason I say that is not just because of Calvin, but in Genesis chapter 20, you find an another, <clears throat> excuse me, another story where Abram, I mean, just shock of shocks, pulls the same ploy with another king called Abimelech. And it says in the text that he stopped Abimelech from violating her. And so if God's going to protect her dignity in that scene, he would protect her dignity in this scene. So how would he know that Abram was behind this? Well, probably because Sarah didn't have any diseases on her. She wasn't affected by the plague. By protecting her, he would see that he is being disciplined because he was moving towards her. Asking her, she would have explained the story of Abram. But I want you to see that in all this kind of moral misbehavior, God is still rescuing faith. One author said it this way, the events described in this section raise many questions that go unanswered, creating a sense of ambiguity as to how the behavior of everyone involved should be judged. As is common in biblical stories, the narrator gives no direct evaluation of the participant's action, leaving the reader to figure out the ethical questions. In this passage, The first readers would have seen how God kept his promise to Abram in spite of all the threats and in spite of the morally dubious actions even of Abram himself. God is rescuing and protecting his people for his plan and for future generations. But I I want you to see that God doesn't treat sin casually. You see that the Pharaoh is disciplining Abram. I mean, right? Do you not see this with these questions? Abram has no answers for him. 
I mean, it's, the Pharaoh is held as more morally upright than Abram. The Pharaoh is held to believe in God more than Abram. God uses the nations to judge the people of God when they walk in sin. May that not be the case for us. That God will use the godless to judge his own people. But he, he disciplines us because he loves us. And the reason I say that is because you see it right here. He didn't say, I'm done with you, Abram. I'm kicking you to the curb. I gave you all those promises and you wasted them. You're not worthy of what I've done for you and what I've done to you. What does he do? He delivers them. He delivers them through discipline. This is incredibly merciful of God. Notice what it says at the end. He says, he gave his men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And you say, what's he doing sending him away with all that he had? He gave him all that wealth and he's going to send him away? He probably still had the plagues. And he knows that until Abraham leaves, the plagues won't go. And so he sends him away. But notice what it says. He sent them away with all that they had. He, sent, he expelled him out of Egypt, kicked him out, and kicked him out wealthy. What does this make you think? I mean, I mean, do you not see this story as kind of a proto-Exodus? Do you not see this as a precursor to Exodus? I mean, right? And Moses going down and meeting with Pharaoh. And the people are in a bind there. Abram couldn't save Sarai. She was in the household of Pharaoh. God had to save. The, the, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. They couldn't save themselves. So Moses goes down into Egypt. And they went down there originally because of what? A famine. And they get enslaved. And then how are they rescued? How are they freed? by plagues, just like this. And when they left because of the plagues, did they go away empty-handed? No, they pillaged Egypt. They took the wealth of Egypt with them. Do you see the narrator? This is the incredible word. Think about the word of God. Is you see these patterns of God's redemptive behavior. You see him save Abram, which prepares us to better understand the greatest redemption story in the Old Testament, the Exodus. He saves a people for his glory based on nothing they've done because God's merciful. But what does that prepare us for? It prepares us for Christ. Why is it that the Spirit impelled Mary and Joseph to go to Egypt so that it could fulfill? Out of Egypt I drew my son. Jesus is leading another exodus. He's leading another deliverance. Jesus is now delivering us. That's why he came out of the desert. That's why he looks like Adam. He looks like Moses. He looks like, even Matthew says he's the son of Abraham or Abram. See, all these stories in the Bible are preparing us for the great story, which is the gospel, that God would send a son into Egypt, into our wilderness. We can't save ourselves. We're in the Pharaoh's house. No way of escape for us. We're in Egypt under bondage. No saving of ourselves. One had to come from outside to deliver us. This is the gospel story, and you see it right here in Genesis 12. He came to save us, but, but not from the nefarious motives of a pharaoh, or not from bad work situations, or even all the way to slavery. He came to save us from something so profound and something so 
difficult, our own sin and our own shame and the guilt that we have before God. And he came to save us so that what? We would be the people of God. We would continue on the plan. He sent Abram away. The plan will continue. Salvation will continue. Does this change your view of God? Does this cause you to see God differently right now? If you've seen God as kind of harsh or unyielding or kind of a taskmaster or kind of keeping strokes on all the things you've done wrong, do you see God a little different here? Even though you may be faithless, notice what Paul, Paul encourages Timothy in the second letter. He says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. In other words, if you are of God, if you have been born again, if you've believed in the gospel, he can't deny you, even in your faithlessness. Think about the pastoral implications for this. I mean, so many of us, when we're caught in sin, the believers are caught in sin, and they're caught in deep sin, often dark sin. And what do we think? I'm not worthy anymore. I mean, I've I've so far blown it, it, it just, yeah, I mean, maybe the first, second, third, tenth, fifteenth time he'd forgive me, but he, I mean, I've, I've abused his kindness to me. I can't go back to him. Won't do it. I've heard those words, and yet we have this kind of God that even when we're faithless, he remains faithful. He can't disown us. Do you understand that the gospel has forged a covenant? made not in the blood of bulls and goats that is temporal, but it's made in the blood of an eternal son who's perfect in every way and who has now forged us. This is what we have. Uh, For the person here who's not a Christian, don't neglect this mercy. I, I mean, don't neglect, don't think that Christians are somehow made by behavior or where they are on Sunday morning. No, Christians are made by the Spirit of God moving us to feel the conviction of our sin that we see a need for a deliverer, one to bring us out of our own Egypt. He is faithful even when we're faithless. Folks, rejoice with me over that. I mean, I don't know what you brought in your wagon of goodies today and what you've done this past week and how you've behaved and how you've thought and what you've said. Listen, we've all got something in the box, no doubt. But here we come to meet a God who is merciful. This doesn't engender complacency with holiness if you understand what Christ has done for you. If you understand that it is finished on the cross, it doesn't engender a casual approach, but it sure does engender a willingness to run to him even though we are stained and find forgiveness. Repentance is one of the greatest gifts we have. Repent and run to him, Christian. But also, do you see that those of you who are faltering, even right now, he'll rescue your faith? I mean, didn't he and the disciples? Think about Jesus' ministry. They're in the boat. They're trained fishermen. They're going across the sea. A storm rages. And what does it say of Jesus? He's asleep in the back. Now, it wasn't because he had a hard day. Let me assure you of that. I think it's a reflection of Psalm 3, where he says he slept in perfect peace in the midst of his enemies. He's at peace because he knows God's sovereign over that storm. And they come and wake him up and say, what are you doing? Don't you care that our lives are being threatened? He gets up and he calms the storm. And it says the sea became still. So, so it wasn't like, you know, if you've ever been on a boat and a storm comes through and blows out, you know, the waves keep going for a while. Poof, no waves. It's all st- what is he doing here? He's not taking them and preserving them from the... I think he's saving their faith. 
He's reminding them who he is, how he loves them. See the same thing with Peter when he gets out of the boat and he says, I want to walk to Jesus. And so he starts walking and takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to sink. What does Jesus do? He reaches out and he saves him. That's what God does. He rescues our faith because his plan is certain and his plan is sure. He will redeem his own. Friends, we need to know that we are his own through faith in the Son. So you see here in Genesis 12, God saves. He saves through a Messiah. All this was preparing us. So when Jesus comes and declares his mission, we say he's the one that they were pointing to. And in him we put our faith. Let's take a moment and just ask God for grace to rejoice over his mercy. But friends, don't neglect this mercy. Even now, appeal to him that he might comfort you with it. And then I'll pray for us in a moment.